This morning, we get to look into Acts chapter 3. Um, and as has been mentioned, this is the, the second of several sermons by Peter, though Peter wasn't the only one there. This was both Peter and John present, and it multiple times says that they were together in what they did. So Peter apparently was just the spokesman. But before we dive into that, did I get this going? Yeah, I did. Good. Before we dive into that, you know, sort of the central feature of what we're going to look at this morning is a miracle. And it's not just like a small miracle. It, it might seem small, but I, I hope as we go along, you'll realize it was anything but. Um, this very, very awesome miracle occurs. And, uh, and so I want to just take a second to think about miracles and, and what they are and why they're here. And we've had entire sermons on this. I think uh, Alan did a sermon on this one time, which was great. And this book's been written on this too. So this is just going to be a very quick overview. But first of all, let's think for a second. What is a miracle? Because we use that word in a lot of different ways, don't we? We would say, oh, you know, she had a baby. What a miracle. Okay. Do we actually mean by that that it was a miracle, you know, a, a supernatural intervention in the order of things? No, we don't. We mean it was an amazing and wonderful thing that a child has been born. And it's such a wonderful process, not necessarily an easy one, but a wonderful one. Uh, And so we use the term miracle in that sense of something that's just wondrous and amazing, even though it's perfectly normal. Children are born all the day, someplace, somewhere, there's a child being born this moment. Uh, We also use the word miracle in the sense of, wow, I made it there on time. That was a miracle. That's the sense of, it was sort of unexpected. You know, I don't make it places on time all the time. So for me to make it there on time, that's sort of a miracle. But again, that's not the sense we're thinking of when we think of uh, a miracle in the Bible. When we're thinking of a miracle in the Bible, we're thinking of it in the sense of, I'm going to go just a little to the side there. There we go. We're thinking of it more in the sense of an intervention in the natural order of things. And typically we're thinking of this as an intervention by God in the natural order of things, which shouldn't surprise us, of course, too much. If God is the creator of heaven and earth, and we're, this not, sermon is not going to be getting into, well, exactly how and when did that happen? You know, that's, that's not our purpose this morning. But if God is, if you're willing to accept God as the creator, as the first cause behind everything, Well, then the fact that if he wants to sort of reach into his creation and do a little bit of a tweak now and again, you know, should that surprise us that he could do that? I I don't think that should surprise us at all that the Lord could do that. And so he does do that sometimes, but he doesn't do it in a random fashion. So miracles, unlike what some people tend to think, miracles are not sort of just evenly, randomly spread throughout the Bible. If you read through your Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that miracles occur in very distinct clusters or spurts. And they're typically coming when there is a new message or a new messenger or both to be authenticated. Uh, When Moses came on the scene, there was a lot of miracles that occurred when Moses was on the scene. But this is Moses leading the people out of the promised land, authenticated as God's messenger, the one who's going to write the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, This was a very critical time in Old Testament history, and Moses and his ministry and and his authority was vindicated by mighty miracles by God. Uh, Another example would be in the time of Elijah and Elisha. So easy to get those names confused. Uh, But it was a time of apostasy. 
most of Israel had turned away from God. There were very few who were faithful to the Lord, and they came with a message of judgment and a message calling people to repentance. And their ministry was authenticated by miracles, uh, some wonderful miracles that occurred at that time. And of course, not surprisingly, when the Lord Jesus comes along, his ministry is authenticated by miracles. Last week, uh, when our brother John uh, was going through Acts chapter 2, uh, Acts 2.22 says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Did you notice? Attested to you by God through miracles. Okay, the miracles demonstrated, showed that this is really who he claims to be. This is the sent one of the Father. This is the one who's going to be the Messiah. This is the Holy One. Um, the miracles authenticated um, who he was. Um, and the same thing happened in the time of the apostles. In the time of the apostles, especially early on in, in apostolic times, shortly, you know, in, in the first five, 10, maybe 15 years after the uh, death and resurrection of Christ, there's quite a number of miracles that happen. Uh, many of them we see happening at the hands of, of Peter or of Paul, but sometimes of others also. But many, many miracles happened during that time. And again, that was God's way of saying, this, this is my message. This isn't just some random Jewish cult that's got some wild ideas. This is from me. This is my message. And we're going to see that happen uh, today in the account that we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 3. A miracle occurs. That miracle vindicates the authority of the message and then the messengers. And then Peter and John take the opportunity that that miracle gives for them to be able to preach concerning the Lord Jesus. So three different things, if everything goes well, that I'm going to look at in this chapter. In the first 11 verses, uh, verses 1 through 11, is the miracle of healing. Uh, verses 12 through the beginning of chapter of uh, verse 19 is the message of salvation. And then if we have time, uh, verse 19 through 26 through to the end is the mercy of God available to Israel, the miracle of healing, the message of salvation, and the mercy of God. So let's first look at that miracle of healing. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, Peter and John, and I'm every once in a while, for the sake of time, going to skip some words, but please just follow along. Um, now, Peter and John were going up to the temple. Uh, verse 2, and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his uh, gaze upon him and said, look at us. And he began to, uh, to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately, and that immediately is really key, immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And I know for those of you who were raised in Christian homes and went to Sunday school, the song's going through your head at this point. That's okay, but let's Let's move past the song, too. The song is wonderful, but let's also think about some other things. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, the so-called particle of Solomon, full of amazement. 
No surprise that they were full of amazement. Let's think for a moment. What would this man's life like? Well, we find out from the next chapter uh, that he was over 40 years old. Okay, so he wasn't a kid. Um, He had been around for a while. um, And he was helpless. He was totally helpless, totally dependent upon uh, the mercy and the kindness of other people. He couldn't get around at all. I, I, I can't imagine that. I mean, walking is such a huge part of my life, both for pleasure. I, I do a huge amount of walking. I'm not sure if I do quite as much as, as our brother Alan does, but I do a huge amount of walking. I go out. I walk generally a couple of miles a day, you know, thereabouts. I go hiking sometimes as much as six, seven, eight, nine miles or so at a shot on the weekend. Um, I love walking. But of course, we also need to be able to walk just to get from place to place. Um, and back then, certainly to be able to um, earn your living, to be able to have food to eat, to be able to have the basic necessities of life, you needed to be able to walk. This man could not walk. This man was totally helpless, had been dependent on others for many years to, to carry him to what was probably a pretty good begging location. I mean, you know, as begging locations go, you would think the entrance to the temple, that's probably a pretty good place because, you know, you have people coming to worship God or at least to go through the forms of worshiping God. Uh, and, and here's this guy sitting there saying, you know, have mercy on me, help me out. And it would be, you know, if they're sincere in their desire to worship God, they might be have a generous spirit at that point and, and tend to, you know, throw a little money his way. And if they're not sincere, they're hypocrites, but they want to look good. Well, again, maybe they'll throw some money his way. Either way, it's a great place to be able to be begging but still uh, a humiliating situation and a helpless situation. Uh, Not a good place to be. Very, very difficult thing for this man. Um, Probably sometimes, by the way, we're we're not lame, right? But sometimes we probably feel a bit helpless in circumstances that we're in and feel a need for deliverance. But this man was literally helpless and had a difficult time. Let's think about what he might've known already. So this man had probably been deposited at the threshold of the temple since, again, he's in his 40s at this point. He had probably been there for years, maybe for decades. Now, this is shortly after the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, this is really a couple of months after the death and resurrection of Christ. So there's a very high likelihood. We can't know for sure. I'm I'm using my sanctified imagination a little bit here. But there's a very high likelihood, I would say, that this man had seen Jesus that this man had heard Jesus preach, that this man was familiar with who Jesus was, at least to an extent. The disciples at this point in history, which changed shortly thereafter, but at this point in history, the disciples, the followers of Christ were well accepted in the temple precincts. It was fine for them to go there. Um, And so he had probably heard the message of the resurrection. He had probably heard the gospel message. He very possibly had even heard, either heard directly or heard of, um, Peter's other sermon in Acts chapter two already. So, so there's a lot he already would have known. The name of Jesus would not have been unfamiliar to him. Who Jesus was and potentially what Jesus could do would not have been unfamiliar to him. So when Peter, because it might seem strange, when Peter is calling him to faith, well, what can be the content of his faith? But Jesus was probably a name that was well known to him. Um, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus had been crucified and died. And that was probably an event that was well known uh, throughout the city. And the resurrection was well known, I think, also at this point. So there he is. 
Peter comes up to him and Peter does a really smart thing. What does Peter do? Peter doesn't say you're healed. No, Peter says, look at us. He says, look at us. He gets the man's attention. You know, I'm not a fisherman at all. I've gone fishing, real fishing once in my entire life. I've known other people who love fishing. I know something of fishing from talking to people and from reading, but I'm not a fisherman. But I know there's more than one way to catch fish, right? I mean, you can catch fish. And this was a common thing that someone like Peter and John would have done because they were both fishermen where, you know, you're casting nets down. You're casting a wide net and you're trying to get as many fish into that net as you can. There's that form of fishing. Um, But then again, you could also do fishing in a more very specific way where you're throwing out a line and it's got a lure or got bait on it and you're trying to attract the attention of the fish. And we are called to be fishers of men. And I think the analogy is a good one in thinking about how we present the gospel. There are times where we're casting a pretty wide net. You know, we used to go to Fanny Day, uh, Fanny Wood Day, and when we had a booth and we'd hand out literature and tracks, that was casting a pretty wide net. We had no idea who was going to come to the booth. They were people we had never met before. They were people who very possibly we'd never meet again. Um, but we were just trying to cast a wide net, make the gospel available, and hope that perhaps as, as God worked, some people might respond, or at least that we can plant a seed uh, in someone's life. But there are other times where as the Lord leads and gives us opportunity, we can get to know individual people and seek to attract their attention to the truth of the gospel as we live it out. And by what we say and what we do, we can seek to attract their attention to the truth of the gospel. And perhaps we need to learn to do that better. Let's see, where am I? Oh, I'm on page two. Okay, so um, this man responds to Peter's invitation to faith. And in a moment, he's healed. I would just want to take just a second to think about what an awesome miracle this is. Like I, I, I teach anatomy and physiology for a living. Although the person I really wish was here uh, was Josh, because he's probably even better at understanding this than I am because um, he's a physical therapist. But, um, but still, I have some knowledge of how all this stuff plays out. And there's a complex interplay of, of bones, tendons, ligaments, muscles, you know, in your feet, in your ankles, in your legs that allow you to be able to get up on your feet and be able to walk. I mean, there's other structures in your hips and other places too, for that matter. But, but still, we're told that this man's ankles and feet were healed. And so what I'm guessing is the situation is from birth, there had been some type of deformity. Okay, maybe there were some bones or ligaments or muscles missing or deformed, but there was something seriously, seriously wrong because you can usually learn to compensate if it's just minor problems. But there was probably something structurally seriously wrong in one or both of his feet, probably both, such that there was just no way he could physically get on his feet and walk. Um, and, And so this is an unbelievable miracle because in an instant, all of those structures that are missing or deformed are all put in place and repaired instantaneously. And that's not possible. That just can't be done. I mean, you see that kind of thing in science fiction movies and and such. And I laugh when I see that kind of stuff, frankly, um, because it's impossible. 
you, you can't just wave a magic wand and have cells grow instantaneously and bone form instantaneously, and muscle form instantaneously, and have all the neurological stuff that has to happen happen instantaneously as you need to have neurons that send down neurites that connect up to each of the muscles so they can activate them to cause them to do what they need to do on command. You can't have that kind of stuff happen instantaneously. Plus, there's a lot that goes on in your brain that allows you you know, there's neurological pathways that need to be developed in your brain to allow you to be able to stand and walk and leap. And that takes time. That is stuff that is developed over days, weeks, months. There is no way to develop that instantaneously. It's flat out impossible. And so for me as a biologist, when I look at this miracle, to me, this is one of the most impressive miracles in scripture. I mean, you know, it may not outwardly look as impressive as the parting of the Red Sea, uh, but that's just physics. Uh, but for me, this is, this is pretty awesome to think about what God had done. Um, this was a pretty awesome thing for this man to be healed. I'd like to make just briefly a quick application before we move on here. And this is an application. You know, we, we want to understand what the word of God says, but then sometimes we can take applications based on the word of God. So this is not being taught in the passage. But this is something I think we can take as an application from the passage. We are in a similar situation, or, or at least sure were, to this man, man right? Um, we, we were lame from birth. And that lameness isn't immediately evident. I mean, the fact that this guy was going to have this problem probably was not evident, or at least may not have been evident the day he was born. You know, it may not have been evident when he was a week old or a month old. It probably took some time. It took a few months for the parents to realize, wow, he's not getting around the way like other kids do. And we try to get him to stand up and he falls back down. Every time we try to get him to stand up, he can't seem to stand on his own feet. It would have taken time for the problem to become evident. We are born unable to walk with God, unable to have fellowship with God, unable to, to, to stand in God's presence because of our own inborn tendency to sin. And, and, and that's not evident at first. You know, when, when, when a little baby is born, the baby doesn't, you know, start doing horrible things the second it comes out of its mom's womb. It takes time, but it always happens, right? I mean, you know, there's never a child who doesn't learn to say no pretty quickly, and you don't need to teach them that one. They, they learn it all on their own. Um, there's an inborn tendency to sin that prevents us from being able to enjoy fellowship with God and, and have the life of God. Um, and have him in our lives as a vital part of our lives. And, and we need to be healed. And we can be healed in the same way that this man was instantaneously healed by God, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We too, if we haven't already, can experience spiritual healing, forgiveness, and new life by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus. I, I hope that everyone here has already done that. I hope that everyone who's hearing me, even if it's on a delayed basis, basis has done that. But if not, this is something to seriously consider doing. And of course, we can give the message of how that can happen to other people, which is what Peter is about to do right now. Because when it says, when Peter saw this, saw the people running towards him, um, verse 12, he said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate. This is pretty tough. When he had decided to release him, but you disowned, that's the second time he says that, the holy and the righteous one 
and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince or author of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is in the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you act in ignorance, just as the rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away. So Peter takes this wonderful opportunity to present the message of salvation, which is the section we're in now. And we get this great description of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we actually considered in our last meeting, you know, as the servant of God. This is reminiscent of the language that's used in the book of Isaiah that talks about the Lord Jesus as the servant of Jehovah, the perfect servant of Jehovah. The Messiah was prophesied to be the perfect servant of Jehovah, and the Lord Jesus, of course, certainly was. The holy and the righteous one who did no sin, the prince or the author of life, which, by the way, strongly points to his deity. Okay, if you are the author of life, who are you? Well, you're God. Okay, there's no one else who is the author of life. I am not the author of life. No human being can possibly be the author of life. Moses, great as he was, was not the author of life. If we're talking about someone being the author of life, we're talking about God. It bears mentioning, I know as a young Christian, um, saved only a few years, I, I got to know a lot of different people from different backgrounds, some of which seriously questioned the deity of Christ. And I wondered about it. I knew the proof texts you know, John 1, 1 and things like that. Um, but still, I wondered about it. And so I went and I read through the New Testament, taking note of every single verse that, that really bore on the question of whether or not Jesus was just man, just God, or somehow both. And I was hoping that maybe I would find more proof texts like John 1, 1, so I'd have some mental ammunition. And I did find some very special verses, but I also found that it's all over the place. I mean, it's just all over the place. If you read the New Testament with an open mind, it is really, really hard to not constantly be stumbling over verses like this one that that strongly point to the deity of Christ. There's, of course, many verses, uh, especially in the Gospels, but some in the epistles that also point to his humanity. He was fully man. It wasn't just God, you know, in a man suit, so to speak. He, he was fully God and fully man, but there are verses like this that point to his deity. And of course, he's the risen one. He's the one who's risen from the dead, which was a central point of the preaching of Peter and probably should be a more central point in our presentation of the gospel. Um, you know, this is something I was going to say for the conclusion, but let me mention it right now. Uh, you know, if you want to be able to present the gospel to others, one of the things that I think is very helpful to do, and you can do that as we go through this series, is to look at how the gospel is presented in the book of Acts. Look at how the early church presented the gospel. You know, don't get your presentation of the gospel from reading gospel tracts, which, you know, some of them are very well written, but get your idea of what the gospel is by looking in the New Testament. And in, in the book of Acts in particular, we see the presentation of the gospel. Now, the explanation of the gospel and some great verses we can read, uh, use in presenting the gospel. Well, that's in the epistles, especially, you know, books like Galatians and Romans, wonderful, deep explanations of the gospel and what it means to be forgiven and what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. But as far as presentation, a lot of great things we can see in Acts. And one of the important things that we see in Acts is time and time again, the resurrection of Christ is presented 
you know, front and center. And perhaps we should be presenting that more front and center as we present the gospel. Peter charges the people with guilt um, for um, disowning this wondrous person and choosing a murderer. Um, And I I think it's worth considering, you know, who was guilty uh, and others as we go through the um, acts may consider this, but, but who was guilty of the death of Christ Uh, widely accepted during medieval times was the fact that it was the Jews. The Jews were guilty of the death of Christ. And certainly, you know, as you can see from what Peter says, the Jews cannot, you know, escape that guilt. I mean, you know, the Jewish leaders and the people incited by the Jewish leaders did say his blood be upon us. Uh, that, that, that's pretty uh, front and center. But I think we misunderstand things if we, if we think that that's all there is to it. You know, I, I was trying desperately to find the quote. And if one of you guys can find this for me, and I know there's at least a couple of you here who are into history. Um, so maybe one of you can help me with this sometime, not right now. Um, I was trying to find the quote. There was some medieval leader who was involved in the Crusades, which in many ways were horrendous. Um, and he said, you know, and he was very anti-Semitic and wanted to kill all the Jews because they were guilty of the death of Christ. And he said, if he had been there, at the cross with his armies, he would have killed all those horrible people and he would have delivered Jesus from having to die on the cross. This is a man who professed to be a Christian, okay? And a lot of people who profess to be Christians are not Christians, okay? And this man obviously was clueless as far as the necessity of the death of Christ, okay? Taking that Christ off the cross by force would have been the very last thing he would ever have wanted anyone to do. He was there by choice. He wasn't there because he had gotten stuck there because of the Jewish leaders, although they bore guilt for what they did. He wasn't there because Pilate was a spineless weakling from a political point of view and condemned someone who he knew perfectly well to be innocent, although Pilate certainly bore some guilt for what he did. He wasn't there because the Roman soldiers delighted in mocking him and abusing him and then nailing him to the cross. Um, what they did was wrong, and they probably knew on some level what they were doing was wrong. But they did it anyway, but that's not why he was there. Why was Jesus there on the cross? Who put him on the cross? We did. We did. We put him on that cross. He was on that cross because of us. He was on that cross because there was no other way to pay for our sin. No other way. He was on the cross by the conscious decision of the father who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. He was on the cross because of the conscious decision of the son to obey the father and to ransom us. And he was on the cross because of our sin. And he died on that cross because of our sin. I think it's important for us to remember that. Peter, having charged the people with guilt, though, turns around and softens his message a bit. He says, I know what you did, you did in ignorance. You know, we probably need to learn as we present the gospel, there's a rhythm to things. Yes, you need to get people lost before they can be saved. You need to help them to understand that they're sinners condemned before a holy God before they can possibly call on that holy God in the name of Jesus for salvation. But, you know, you don't want to just be beating them and beating them and beating them and beating them. Um, There needs to be also a message of hope. And Peter says, I know you did what you did, in ignorance. Now, how could he say it was in ignorance? Because all the things I just said about what Pilate did and what the Jewish leaders did and what the soldiers did, 
How in the world could that be an ignorance? And this isn't just a strange doctrine that Peter is introducing, because do you remember what did the Lord Jesus pray on the cross as the nails were being put into his wrists? Probably went through his wrists, not through his hands anatomically, through the hands it wouldn't have held his weight up. What did he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not even Father, forgive them. They know exactly what they're doing, but forgive them anyway. No, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, of course they knew what they were doing. They had crucified a lot of people. Okay, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were professionals. And they were probably the same men who had beaten him and abused him and mocked him and said, hail, king of the Jews, and then beaten him over the head and, and beaten those thorns into his brow. They knew what they were doing. They had laughed at him. They had mocked him. But did they know who he was? Did the Jewish leaders realize who they were dealing with? Did Pilate? I think Pilate had a little inkling, and it scared the death out of him. At one point, Pilate looks at him and says, who are you? They didn't realize that this was the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. They didn't realize this was the Messiah. They didn't realize this was God in the flesh. They had no conception of who they were dealing with. That was hidden from them. They didn't know it. And then in that sense, they were ignorant. They were doing something they knew to be wrong, but they had no conception of the depth of how wrong they were, which was God's plan at the time. Because again, Christ had to die for us. And if they had realized they were dealing with the son of God, they would never have dared to put those nails through his wrists. They would have backed away in awe and in fear. And so it was veiled from them. Peter calls upon them to repent and to return, turning from their false beliefs about Jesus, turning from their lives of rebellion against God to lives of trust and obedience and resting in the work of Christ. And a lot of them respond. This is going into the next chapter, so I'm not, not going to read the verse, but we read of another 2,000 people getting saved. Okay, so there was a huge response to this message. Many, many individual Jews came to faith. I do want to mention one thing, by the way. If you'll notice, comparing this sermon to the last sermon, the one that we heard about last week, and there are some similarities in terms of the message going on, and it's worth doing. But in the last sermon, they were told to repent and be baptized. Do you notice that that's missing here? Do you notice he doesn't say repent and be baptized? He just says repent. And you can't say, well, that's because he was dealing with Jews who he was convicting of the death of Christ in, in Acts chapter two. He's dealing with Jews convicting them of the death of Christ in Acts chapter three also. So that explanation really doesn't fly. Um, so I, I'm thinking there's at least two reasons I can think of that perhaps he doesn't say and be baptized. One is it's perhaps meant as an example to us. The gospel is not something that you proclaim it the same way in every situation to every uh, person or group of people. You have to tailor your presentation to who you're talking with and to the circumstances you're in, okay? There's nothing wrong with learning canned presentations of the gospel if they help you to understand what it is that you want to say, but, but still, as you get to know people, you're going to end up presenting the gospel. The message stays the same. And Peter's message in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three has not changed. But the way you go about presenting it and the exact words you use may vary from time to time as you seek to help people come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so 
I think perhaps is an example here for us that you don't necessarily use the exact same words every time. Peter's not reading from a script and saying the same thing every single time. The other thing is perhaps the Spirit of God maybe have led Peter not to mention baptism. Baptism is very important, but he may have led him not to mention it to avoid the very problem that we have today. Uh, that is, of having such a close association between faith and repentance and salvation on one hand and baptism on the other, that some people sort of put them together. And it's like, yes, to be saved, you must be baptized. And baptism somehow has a saving benefit. And that's not the case. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. In the early church, salvation, as you repented of your sins, turned away from um, you know, your life of disobedience and disrespect towards God and entered into a relationship with him based on the work of Christ, repentance and faith leading to salvation and baptism very often would happen minutes, maybe at most hours apart. These were two events that happened at the same time for a variety of reasons, which may or may not be good. You know, we here in the 21st century, we don't do it that way. We separate those two events. Okay, baptism happens, you know, in some churches, and then years later, that person may actually come to an understanding of who Jesus is. Someone comes to an understanding of who Jesus is in our circles, and then maybe weeks, months, years later, they end up getting baptized. We've separated those two events. But in the New Testament, that was really unheard of. In New Testament times, you got baptized, you, you believed, you got baptized, the two of them went together, you know, like bread and butter. Okay, Um, but even though they did go together and should, I think, when possible, be fairly closely linked, they're not equivalent and baptism does not save. And there's many, many reasons in Scripture to believe that, among which I think one of the the ones I like best is when Peter and I think not Peter, Paul, and I think uh, the beginning of one of his epistles, maybe it's uh, first Corinthians, I think, says, I'm really so glad that I didn't baptize very many people. So if baptism is essential for salvation, that's a very strange thing for Paul to say. Uh, But again, let's move on. So the next section I was going to do, and I'm realizing I'm not really going to be able to do this, I'm just going to mention it for a second, is um, the end of verse 19 through verse 26, the mercy of God available to Israel. And maybe it's just as good that I'm sort of running out of time, because to be honest, this is the section I was least comfortable with. Um, So I'm just going to lay out for you really quickly. And if you want to study this further, please feel free. And if you want to talk to me about this further, please feel free. Um, but there are many commentators. And, and personally, as I look in, you know, the scriptures, I sort of agree with them, but I'm not sure that I'd be 100% sure of this one. Everything I've set up to this point, I feel very strongly about. And I, I would pretty much swear on a stack of Bibles that to my knowledge, it's all true. Um, and it's all correct. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm not wrong. It just means at least I'm sincere. Uh, but this last portion, okay, when, when, um, when Peter says, you know, that as he's talking to this group in front of the temple, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive in the, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. There are many who feel that at this point, and probably continuing on through to the end of chapter seven, that what's going on is God is giving a final opportunity for the nation of Israel to turn back to him in faith and in repentance. 
And that theoretically, and it's only theoretical because A, it didn't happen, and B, God knew it wouldn't happen, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a valid offer. You know, if you know someone's going to reject your offer, that doesn't mean you're not sincere in making the offer. It just means you know it's probably going to be fruitless. Um, God was perhaps giving the nation of Israel after the death and resurrection of Christ one last time as a nation, which probably would have had to be led by their leaders um, to acknowledge that they had been wrong and that Christ Jesus really was the Christ, really was the Messiah and turned back to him. And theoretically, maybe Jesus could have come back, you know, at that point and the millennium could have started right then. God, you know, Christ's millennial kingdom. However, as we go to see in Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five, um, the leaders were not in any way, shape or form interested. And then finally in Acts chapter seven, when um, Stephen gives his impassioned message and what's the result, they kill him just like they killed Jesus. So if this is what was going on and God was giving them sort of a last gasp chance, it obviously uh, nothing was going to come of it. Um, However, the reason I mentioned that besides the fact that I think it's here, I think there's two things we can take quickly from that. Um, one is God is gracious and faithful all the time. He keeps his promises. He made a lot of promises to the nation of Israel, and he was not going to forget about those promises. And he still isn't, by the way, just because Israel has been laid aside, you know, in God's plan and working for now does not mean he does not care about the nation of Israel. He made promises to them as a nation, not just individuals. Individual Jews can become saved, become part of the church. I'm one of those individual Jews. It can happen. It doesn't happen often, but it can happen. Um, but the nation, one day when the Lord Jesus returns, as it says in Zechariah 12, is going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn for him. And if you're interested in knowing more about how God has laid aside Israel and yet is going to bring them back when they turn to him in faith, Read Romans 9 through 11. There's some really great stuff there. Let's move on. And by the way, of course, if, if he's going to go through that much trouble to keep his promises to Israel, we better believe he's going to keep his promises to us. They may not be fulfilled in the way and time we think they're going to be, but they are going to be fulfilled. In conclusion, uh, three questions I'd like to consider, and I'll, I'll try to go th- through them fairly quickly. One of them, the first of the three questions is Peter and John were awfully confident about who Jesus is. And what it meant to know him. How confident are you? How confident are you? Look, if we're going to be able to live a life of faith and obedience to the Lord and share the gospel with others, we better be pretty confident about what we believe. Okay, if we don't know what we believe, and if we don't know why we believe it, then we're probably going to be sort of wishy-washy and living for the Lord, and we're probably not going to be very effective in sharing the gospel. So do whatever it takes to become confident. Okay, we don't have the advantages that Peter and John did. We were not eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Christ. We were not eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, but we have the New Testament. And the New Testament is an amazing document. I mean, we have the Old Testament too, but I'm I'm talking here about the life of Christ, uh, which we see in the Gospels and then explained uh, in the Acts and in the Epistles. We have the New Testament documents, which have a huge, uh, you know, wonderfully attested manuscript background, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, far more than any ancient document that historians, you know, accept without a blink of an eye. Very, very old documents going back pretty close to, to when the originals would have been written. We have very, very good reason to believe that the New Testament documents are actually legitimate history. And if they're legitimate history, well, then the things that we read about who Jesus is, about what he said, about the miracles that he performed, about his resurrection, 
that should be enough to give us an awful lot of confidence. So I encourage you to do whatever it takes to become confident in your faith. Second question, um, are you sure that you've personally responded to the truth of the gospel? And again, because most people here, if not all, are believers, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but again, it's possible that there's someone here or that there's someone listening or who will be listening who doesn't know Christ. And even if that's not the case, well, then take to mind what I'm saying and perhaps use it as you think about the gospel and present it to other people. Because when I hear gospel presentations, that's what I try to do. I know Christ is Savior. I've known the Lord for a number of years now, but I enjoy hearing the gospel preached, both because it's a wonderful message. I love hearing about how the Lord died for me, but also because it can give me ideas about how I can reach other people. Um, and so there's something I'd, I'd like to consider. You know, we, we all know the, you know the basics of the gospel, all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We know the basics of the gospel, but I want to just dwell on one word to think about a little bit before we move on, and that's the word repent. Peter in Acts chapter 2 said repent. Peter in Acts chapter 3 said repent. So what does repent mean? Well, the, the best illustration I've ever gotten in my life is driving on the highway. Okay, maybe some of you have done this. Okay, um, whether it's because you got on the wrong way or because you missed an exit or because you got confused, but for whatever reason, you find yourself driving perhaps at 60 miles an hour or more in the wrong direction. You're not heading towards what your destination was. Maybe it was a very important destination for you. Maybe it was your child or your friend's wedding or something, but you know, you're not heading where you meant to be heading. Instead, perhaps you're heading the very opposite direction and you're doing it at a good clip. Well, if you realize that you really have two choices, don't you? Right. You can either deny that fact because, Hey, you don't want to swallow your pride and admit you're going the wrong way. And, and hopefully eventually you'll get over that. Or you can go, whoa, okay, so we're going the wrong way. And what do you do? You take the first exit, right? You take the first exit and you get turned around and you start going back the way that you should. Okay, that's repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind. I realize I'm going the wrong direction. And instead of saying, oh, no, I'm actually going the right direction. I really do want to go north. No, no, I need to go south. So you, you turn around and you head the, the same way. Now, you got to swallow your pride to do that. But, you know, hopefully that's not too hard for most of us because all you got to do is admit that you made a, a tiny little mistake 10 minutes ago. And, and hopefully we're big enough and our egos are small enough that we can handle doing that. Repentance in life is a lot harder, isn't it? Because then you have to swallow your pride to admit that you've been going the wrong direction in some area of your life, not in just a little way, but in a larger way. And maybe not just for a few minutes, but maybe for many, many years. It's one of the reasons why it's hard to reach people with the gospel who are older, because they've got all those years of their lives that they basically have to admit to a large extent they were going the wrong direction. That's really, really hard to do. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, I just read um, his book, The Screwtape Letters, recently, reread it love the book. Uh, it's supposedly a story of letters written by a senior devil to a junior devil telling him how to tempt these stupid human beings and get them to get onto and stay on the road to hell rather than the road to heaven. And, and the quote is, um, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, 
without signposts. That's the safe road. We're told that broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life. If you're on the wrong road, or if you know someone who's on the road, road, well, what needs to happen? Get off that road. Don't stay on that road on the way to damnation, but get onto the road to life. So again, if there's anyone hearing this who's on that wrong road, yes, it means swallowing your pride and admitting you were wrong, but you know that's still better than being on the road to destruction. Um, And for those of us who know Christ, this is the message that we need to give people in love, in an appropriate time and way, uh, but it's the message that people desperately need to hear. They do not need to hear, you're fine, everything's okay, don't worry. That's not the message that is going to help them. Uh, last but not least, and this really plays in to what I just said, um, are we, I was going to say you, but I've got to admit that this fits me just as much, are we letting life's busyness or fear of rejection keep us from living for the Lord and in our lives and in our words, presenting the gospel to those who are on that horrible road. Because let's be honest, it's really, really easy. Life is busy. Life is, you know, especially living here in the Northeast, you know, life is intense. Life is busy. Life is full of distractions and temptations and stresses and things that we have to deal with. It is just so easy to let trusting God, walking with him consciously in fellowship, obeying him in our day-to-day level, seeking to do his will, and as part of that, seeking to share Christ with others, it is just so easy to let that slip. Well, that's something, look, life is just too much today, tomorrow. Life is just too busy this week. I'll really, you know, work more on my relationship with God and telling people about Jesus next week, next month, next year. Sooner or later, there is no more next you know, one of the great advantages of getting older, and, you know, I I don't think I quite have a foot in the grave yet, but one of the advantages of getting older is you start to realize, I do not have an infinite amount of time. I do not have an infinite amount of time. And none of us do, right? I mean, even if you're a lot younger, you know, even if maybe you're only in your 40s or 30s or 20s or younger, you still don't have an infinite amount of time. You know, you may have longer on average than I do, but you don't have an infinite amount of time and you don't know if you're going to die tomorrow anyway. None of us do. So let's take the opportunity today um, to live for the Lord. And let's take the opportunity today to seek to find opportunities, pray about opportunities to share this wonderful message that that Peter gave us, this wonderful message of salvation um, in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this account that we've read in your word. We thank you for this awesome miracle that you performed, uh, taking a man who was totally helpless over 40 years old, instantaneously uh, putting the physical structures and the neurological structures in place such that he could walk and leap. Um, This is an amazing thing. But Lord, this miracle wasn't just for people to... um, just be amazed by and for no other purpose. It was meant to to bring attention and opportunity to think about the one who did the miracle, your son, and to think about the even greater miracle that is available of salvation in Christ. We thank you for that miracle that has been done in the lives of each of us who know you. Um, We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were on the path to hell. 
we may or may not have realized that to a great extent at the time, especially for those who were privileged to be raised in Christian homes and saved at a young age. Um, but that's where we were at. And your son, the Lord Jesus, went to the cross, went to the cross because of our sin, died in our place, bore our sins, that by faith in him, we could be forgiven, we could be cleansed, we could be called your children, your sons and daughters. We could have a relationship with a living Savior who loves us so very much, our good shepherd, and who desires for us to have an abundant life even here on earth in fellowship with himself, who desires nothing but the best for us, and who also uh, is ready to welcome us home to glory one day. Help us to live for him and by him, and help us, Lord, to take opportunities to share Christ with other people. And we pray for your blessing and help as we would seek to do that and for souls to be saved, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.